0: Uh, Well, again, I want to just say good evening and thank you all for being here Um, and uh, thanks to the RAI for their co-sponsorship of the Oxford Art History Research Seminar. Um, And I think that maybe, um, to get everybody on the same page, I might take just a moment to uh, say a few words about the biography of Walter Hopps, uh, who uh, is not a um, household name necessarily, but worked with artists, some of the most famous artists in the uh, 20th century. So when we think of artists like Marcel Duchamp, or Joseph Cornell, or Robert Rauschenberg, or Andy Warhol, uh, or Ed Ruscha, these are just a few. Uh, and Hops was uh, involved uh, substantially with all of these artists in their lives and careers. And so uh, it is uh, that uh, relationship that is uh, told in this magnificent volume of, um, uh, of edited recordings uh, of uh, of Hopses that um, became the Dream Colony. Um, To go on with the bio just a bit, Hopps founded his first gallery in Los Angeles at age 21. Uh, At age 24, established the seminal Fyrus Gallery, which was the first to show Andy Warhol's iconic Campbell soup cans. Uh, He was the first to mount a museum retrospective of Marcel Duchamp, of Joseph Cornell, uh, and the first museum exhibition, uh, indeed, of pop art. He worked at the Pasadena Art Museum, the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. He was the commissioner for the American Pavilion uh, at the Sao Paulo Biennale uh, in 1965, and the founding director of the Menil Collection in Houston, which he principally helped to shape. But what I walk away from in reading this book is really not a stack of accomplishments so much uh, as a portrait of a man who deeply loved art and deeply loved artists. And it seemed to me that art was an entire lifestyle for Hops. In a sense, he was really never quite separate from it. Um, would you agree? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I would. I would. In fact, I mean, it was. Um, th- this is someone who started curating as a nineteen-year-old, um, and before that, for for a period in his teens, he was sort of divided between jazz and art. And he was um, mounting jazz shows on campuses when he was a freshman. Um, he was roommates with Charles Mingus, and he, at some point, I think, had to decide between his, had to choose between these two loves. And art was art was more, uh, just more a part of of who he was. But he he had a funny idea, which was that, in his mind, the jazz musicians were going to be. Mm-hmm. The, the great earners of the century, of the, of the 20th century. They were going to hit it big because this music was so popular. And, it was, and, and they were going to have the penthouses and um, <laughs> the fabulous record deals. And the artists were going to, meanwhile, be sort of starving in the, in the attic. Um, and perhaps they needed more help than the jazz musicians did. And of course, it turned out to be the, the opposite.
0: But mm-hmm. um, I love this. <laughs> image. The Walter Hops will be here in 20 minutes. Don't be misled. Mr. Hops will not physically be here. You never know. Here, right? <laughs> no, right. Uh, but what I love about it is um, well first, will you tell us just a little bit about what this is?
1: So Walter was um, devoted his, his entire existence to art and to curating art and to discovering artists, but he was at the same time an extremely unreliable person. And he would disappear for days at a time and uh, work all night. He would hang a show for 48 hours straight and slip speed into his his co-workers' cokes and um, keep them up all night hanging with him and so on. So he was was erratic. And it cost him a number of positions. But when he was at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, People were always looking for Walter, and he was not there. When he was at the Smithsonian, at the National Collection of of Fine Arts, his boss, Joshua Taylor, said, if I could find the guy, I'd fire him, you know? (laughs) Um, So the the people at the Corcoran printed up this button, and they would just wear it. So if anyone asked them, (laughs) where's Walter, Um, they could...
0: Point to it. That's true. I love it. So. Uh, but this absenteeism, I mean, there's a certain amount of nonconformism, uh, which I think is a hallmark of. I mean, this is not your traditional. When I think of the word curator, yeah. I think of sort of maybe like a buttoned-up person who um, who lives and loves with the art, but is someone who is kind of organized and on time. And so this absenteeism and this nonconformism, it, it takes a certain amount of audacity, I think, and um, You used the word maverick in your uh, in your introduction. Um, Tell us about Hopps as the maverick who kind of made him this really intensely interesting figure for artists to work with.
1: Yeah, well, so he he, I don't think he ever came at anything from an academic point of view. Um, and that may not be the right thing to say in this room but he he wasn't he wasn't interested in art theory he didn't really i mean he did a he studied art history at uh UCLA for a period of time he started out in sciences he was he was going to go into medicine like his entire family um and then switched over and uh he did complete a number of courses so at some point there was a rumor that he never finished actually finished a course he didn't he didn't graduate and then um his first wife his you know he's he died he had three wives uh, his third wife was his widow his first wife emailed me recently and said she had found a transcript and he'd gotten an a minus a, in an art history class <laughs> so she could prove that he had completed one um, so that he just he wasn't very interested in those things he wasn't very interested he was a very good student he was he was brilliant and in math and physics, mm-hmm. and that, that was actually how he, and chemistry, that was how he first came to art because he was, um, as a 15 year old, he was kind of pulled out of, singled out for a program that was for students who were really talented in sciences and in math to introduce them to art and to other things and expand their horizons. So he and, and actually Susan Sontag were in this group of 15 year olds who were taken around LA to uh, discover art and uh, (laughs) and at some point um, they were taken to the home of a couple of collectors Walter and Louise Ahrensberg who had come from Europe Mm -hmm. and basically their entire home was a it wasn't even a museum because it was contemporary art at that point but uh, they had everyone from Duchamp to Magritte Mondrian, Brancusi hanging up in their home, and Walter had never seen any of this. There was no real museum of modern art in uh, L.A. at the time, and it blew his mind. And that actually was probably a major turning point for mm-hmm. him. He, um, at some point, he went up to Walter Ahrensberg, who was quite an old man at that point, at that time, and asked him what a painting meant. I think it was, I think it was a Magritte, and Walt, uh, Walter Ahrensberg said, "Well, are you ready?" For the answer, and he said, "Well, I, I think I think I am Mr. Ahrensberg. and and he said, "It means nothing." And that that exploded his brain. <laughs> and he he went home and thought about that for for weeks and ended up going back, dropping out of the program and going back to the Ahrensberg's house every Saturday um, just to sit with their art collection. And uh, once in a while, Duchamp would open the door of the room he was sitting in and back out. Um, so that was you know, his introduction as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Now I forget what question I'm answering. Well, um,
0: the, that he was, uh, the, kind that of that he was a maverick. Here, so, he maverick came, yeah. so he
1: came at everything in kind of an unexpected way. It wasn't right. that he studied art and right. discovered who, you know, which, which historical artist he, he was in love with. He just he fell for it. And he fell very hard. And he also, around the same time, wandered into a gallery um, that was run by William Copley, where I think there were only six shows. In the lifetime of the gallery, it didn't last very long, but it was um, there was Max Ernst, um, Man Ray, and several others. And you know, again, he was completely smitten with this. And and a couple of years later, when he was a freshman in college, or, or when he was 20, he he and a friend, the friend who had been booking jazz shows with him, decided to start a gallery. And that was what sent him looking for California artists. He said, there are, you know, mm-hmm. California art is very underrepresented in everything that you see around you. And he would seek them out in Northern California and Southern California. He found a whole school of sort of 20-something artists that no one had seen and who were incredibly exciting to him. And that was, it was just, it, he, he really lived for, um Surprising mm-hmm. art, you know. He wanted something to to take him by surprise. He he loved it when people were a little bit on the edges, on the margins, doing something he hadn't seen before. And, and he always, you know, he, he said that he would dream about art. And in mm-hmm. fact, um, later when he met Frank Stella and saw Frank Stella's black paintings, he he had had a dream about these black paintings, and he had got, got woken up in the middle of the night and kind of sketched them out and then saw Frank Stella's paintings and said, oh, there they are, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so he was always thinking about what, what the next step was mm-hmm. in art.
0: In a sense, that, that idea of, of something that you just said, um, this idea that, that, that Hops, the story of Walter Hopps is a Californian kind of story, this yeah. sense of unfolding horizon of experience and just sort of doing it and kind of always being marginal a yeah. little bit. I mean, to what extent is this a book about L.A.?
1: Yeah, well, also, uh, you and know, so L.A. You was go. marginal and yes. California was marginal in the art world. What was right. happening at that time in the in the 50s and 60s was abstract expressionism. It was in New York mm-hmm. and um, no one really thought that anyone was making art in L.A. Right. And, um, so Ed Ruscha says something in the introduction to the book about you know he he kind of legitimized what these people it, Ruscha was just kind of in his garage um, yeah. doing some things right. <laughs> that he yeah. he thought were interesting and Walter said no this is art yeah, um, right. you know and there's a reason to do it and he brought collectors around that was another thing he was very excited about um, rich people in the movie industry who are interested in art and getting introducing them to contemporary art and to what people were doing right now and he would he actually taught extension classes at UCLA for movie producers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. adult extension art classes to say come with me to this person's studio <laughs> and see if you want to buy something you know it was it wasn't about the money it was about bringing people to the right.
0: art the this so we have yeah. the Arrensberg living room but I wanted to get to um, well, that was Sindel
1: Studio, so that's his first gallery. <laughs> that's the first gallery,
0: uh, and is this the one, something you said about Ed Ruscha, uh, you know, he hops going in and looking at the garage and saying, this is art. Mm-hmm. It, was this the location of the go out and find something and Oh, the next it
1: was. So he started this gallery with, with friends and at some point, I can't remember if he'd been in the army and come back, but he'd scheduled a show and he had no art. So he had an opening planned. but that no one had actually decided what would be opening. And so he he gathered together his friends, and he said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to go out in different directions, and we're going to find things, and we're going to bring them back, and we're going to hang them up. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll call it As Found, and that's the title of the show. So they all went off in different directions mm-hmm. and found various things and hung them on the wall. And it was sort of interesting. I right, think. yeah, right. Um, it, he, he had a habit of of, you know, not just found art but but feeling that just about anything that someone had put effort and creativity into should count Mm -hmm. um... so for instance in washington at some point he did this uh, he did the 36 hour show and he there was a building called the museum of temporary art and he said if any i will hang anything that fits through the door that you bring to me over a period of thirty six hours so he Mm -hmm. stayed up for thirty six hours people were lined up Around the street, around the corner, with their artworks and or strange things, things that weren't you, we wouldn't have called art um, and he stayed up and filled this whole museum with this with whatever was brought to him, and some of some of the people who stood out there in the in the night with their artworks turned out to be quite successful later, (laughs) that was their first encounter with Walter and with the museum. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think that something else that's so remarkable is that in a certain sense, he was unafraid of all different kinds of venues. He was kind of unafraid to tackle more conventional spaces. He was unafraid to tackle the Santa Monica Pier. I I love this uh, photograph of the action show, the merry-go-round show. Uh, Tell us a little bit about- So that was another
1: show at Sindel um, called The Action Show. Which you never saw,
0: right? Which he,
1: um, he wasn't there when it opened, when I think, he, opened, I think right. he came later, he was, he had been drafted and he was doing everything he could to get out of being in the army. Right. Um, but basically they rented, they looked at all kinds of spaces for this show and they couldn't find anything they really liked. They were going to do it in a car dealership and then it was, uh, they couldn't rent it. So they took this old merry-go-round on the Santa Monica Pier, put canvas, hung canvas all around it, hung the art. Um, had their version of John Cage's um, mm-hmm. music they had sort of 16 different radios playing different stations while the merry-go-round music is playing and mm-hmm. the art is twirling and people people showed up and they <laughs> they hung you know some actually I think Corn was in that show mm-hmm. Jada Feo Sonia Gektof, They. it was sort of everybody who was working in California at that time who was interesting to Walter and and his crew um, and you know it got some got some pretty negative reviews in the in the conservative I mean, I <laughs> LA yeah, press at right. the time, but but uh, people remembered it.
0: This is, is something that is totally impossible in 2017, but that's well, a,
1: it would be corporate, and it would be yeah, you know yeah. it would have a sponsor. Um,
0: <laughs> I was I love this photograph of the some of his the stable of of his artists at the Ferris Gallery. Um, at yeah. the Ferris Gallery, which was his which was the second the second, yeah, the second, second one. gallery, yeah. Uh, I couldn't resist this comparison. Uh, on the left is a very well-known photograph by Nina Lean called The Irascibles, which right. uh, was on the cover of Life magazine. And um, I think, in a way, this says it all. Yeah. Um, the New York scene versus the- Versus L.A. L.A. Yeah. scene. Yeah, and
1: it was definitely a, a boys club. In a sense, I mean, he he was very supportive of (laughs) Sonia Gekko and Jada Feo, but there weren't very many women um, artists in the stable. Right. Uh, And and this was a group of you know bad boys. Right. And and that was kind of fun for Walter too. Walter, in the midst of this, actually wore suits and ties Mm -hmm. and was very buttoned up. Um,
0: I want to ask so, but he he did love New York as well.
1: Yeah. So. And he developed at some point, I think while at Sindel, he developed a a system where he would fly to New York on a Friday and uh, go into the Sidney Janis Gallery and um, try to take some art from him to take back to his gallery. And he would write a check. It was a Friday. He knew that it wouldn't go through until the Monday. And then Mm -hmm. he'd race back to New York and try and sell the (laughs) artwork before that check went mm-hmm. through and uh, every now and then, you know, Sidney Janis would call up and, and say, you know, how many times am I gonna have to put this check in before it stops bouncing? Right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so he was, he was very excited about what was happening in New York too. Um, he didn't show it so much until the second incarnation of, of Ferris Gallery. Right. The first one he was in partnership with Ed Keenholtz and they were very focused on California artists the second incarnation was with um, Irving Blum, who is still a gallerist today mm-hmm. and uh, who is much more interested in the East Coast. So.
0: And so he, go, he, he goes, he f- uh, I had a slide up there, so uh, yeah. Frank Stella, uh, who was quite young at the time, I think, he yeah, was doing the black young. paintings when he was just out of Princeton, so he yeah, must have he been was in, was his, in his, his early 20s. 20s. Yeah. Um, And then this photo, this is a very famous photograph by Hollis Frampton, slightly later Stella. These were the, if I'm not mistaken, the Stellas which were shown at Ferris, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, of course, Andy Warhol. So
1: he, um, Walter and Irving went to New York and heard about a guy called Andy Warhol who'd been doing mostly illustrations and went to his house and Walked through his studio with him and saw all of these comic strip uh, paintings, and uh, you know said your work is really interesting and we'd like to show it at Ferris and and Warhol said is that in Hollywood, and they said yes and he said well okay you know <laughs> that's great, and um, they went back to California and and Warhol uh, shipped them the thirty two original Campbell soup cans which they hadn't actually seen on their studio visit but that was what he decided he wanted to debut in hollywood Mm. so they were and this was actually walter's last show at ferris but they had this inspired idea of sort of stacking them like they were on a grocery store shelf Um, they built a shelf for them and uh also that that show was you know mocked everywhere and there was a cartoon in the l.a times Mm -hmm. about uh you know do you prefer the cream of asparagus or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or the chicken vegetable um, and only I think only one of the paintings sold at that show and it sold to Dennis Hopper and a couple of holds were put on other paintings and um, Walter said well Walter was leaving the gallery at that point but he said here's what you do to Irving you buy back that painting don't sell that painting keep them all together and put them away, which he did. Mm-hmm. He, he bought the whole group from Warhol for about $1,000. And um, in the mid-90s, he sold them to MoMA for $15 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He actually bricked them into a wall. He built a wall around them so he wouldn't be tempted to separate them.
0: Here's a question. I was, uh, so where did his business sense come from? Because he was a canny businessman, but he well, learned a lot. He was a terrible lot. businessman, terrible. <laughs> Clever, though.
1: If you read the book, you'll see that half the stories about his, his life are why I'm not rich.
0: Mm. Um, you know. But he learned along the way, I think. He did
1: learn. I think, I think the reason that he didn't, the, reason, the main reason why he wasn't rich um, was that the money was not the, wasn't, wasn't the point, the, yeah, wasn't right. the point. He often, you know, didn't even take a commission when he right. brought a collector to an artist. Um, It it was just never the focus and in a way he he admired Duchamp who sort of didn't like to make money on his art, who did sort of side things to make money um, and felt it was somehow inappropriate to make money on the art and I think Walter had a little bit of that in him.
0: Um, Um, I want to get to Duchamp so first I want to just say so this is Pasadena Art Museum uh, in this. Sort of glorious,
1: strange Chinese building. <laughs> Chinese building
0: in Pasadena. Uh, what was different about Pasadena from other institutions in Los Angeles?
1: Well, at the time, and this was in the late fifties, um, nowhere, nowhere in LA had modern art. Right. You know, there were historical museums, but there was nowhere that had modern art. Um, Pasadena at that time was run by a guy called Thomas Levitt, who was open. To these things and and willing to show them, and he sort of gave he gave Walter somewhat carte blanche to mm-hmm. to bring things in and they you know they would uh, they would discuss you know he, he admired walter 's what Walter was showing at Ferris, mm-hmm. and he thought that the Pasadena Art Museum could be right. a venue for those things and that was that was where Walter um, did the show. Uh, Paintings of uh, New Paintings of Common Objects, which mm-hmm. is considered officially the first pop art show, though it wasn't called pop art. Um, that was what he came up with, <laughs> to call it New Paintings of Common Objects. which had, It had Warhol and Rocher and Jim Dine, um, Roy Lichtenstein, Wayne Thiebaud, and others, mm-hmm. and uh, so there, there was an openness, I think, yes. at, at Pasadena, at least for a period of time.
0: We, we think about um LA now, now, I guess we think about Mocha and LACMA and yeah, such. Yeah, none of that was there. None of that was there. It wasn't, none of that, that was wasn't there,
1: that. and it was actually quite conservative. Right. I That's mean, the right. art establishment was was conservative.
0: So he he wants to. Um, I'll just quote. Before I ever got to Pasadena Art Museum, I decided that there were three artists I was absolutely determined to address in my lifetime: Joseph Cornell, Marcel Duchamp, and Kurt Schwitter's. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, if we think about the Schwitter show, the collage artist in California, he, he, he put a kind of uh, addendum to that show. So you have the Schwitter show and then you have yeah. this kind of adjunct gallery, yeah. which yeah. was about...
1: He liked to do pairings in pairings, that way. right. Um, so he, he put together, you know, there was actually quite a lot of Schwitters in LA at the time mm-hmm. because, um, what's her name, Galka Shire, mm-hmm. had, uh, had brought a lot over. Um, but so he was borrowing Schwitters from everywhere and put that together and then alongside it in a smaller gallery had contemporary collage from California and collage was hugely important to him. I mean if you think about Cornell, Duchamp, yeah. Keenholtz, right. Schwitter's, right. he just and uh, Rauschenberg, mm-hmm. another passion, he just loved it when people threw things yes. <laughs> into their <laughs> into yeah. their paintings or into their art. Um, and that the unexpected surprise of that.
0: Right sort the, of the, the things that the mind already knows, but kind of scrambled up and put mm-hmm. together in a different way, seemed to be his prevailing aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, that show, that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that the show where the, you have the Bill Copley piece with the syringe in it?
1: Yes, um, that th- was the shut com- down. The, the one that was shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. so he had a few shows that were shut down. The first one um, was Wallace Berman. At uh, Ferris, when the, the vice squad, the LA Vice squad, came in and found by actually searching quite hard because it wasn 't even face mm-hmm. up found um, some kind of pornographic image that was face down on the floor in an installation, but um, they shut down the show and, mm-hmm. and impounded the works and Wallace Berman got very depressed and moved to northern california and <laughs> that was that was a traumatic um, so this show, collage in california he uh, he had a couple of works. I think it was the George Herms work that got the show <clears throat> shut down. The crumpled that was, flag. It was using a, right. crumpled, a crumpled US flag, and it was protested. Right. Um, but the museum stood by him. Mm-hmm. Levitt stood by him. There was a, a major donor who weighed in and, and paid the legal fees, and they got mm-hmm. the show back up. Mm-hmm. So,
0: mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Duchamp. Yeah. Uh, uh, this so is the, is you day see, day. like,
1: Walter doesn't look like the guys <laughs> in no. the Ferris.
0: Right. Thing.
1: Yeah. He was always sort of very well put together. Mm-hmm. He looked a bit like a salesman, which is why this, this cover is funny. That's an Ed Keenholtz sculpture of him, of, of Walter. And it's Walter sort of as the, not the guy selling dirty postcards, but he's selling de Kooning. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, he's selling, selling people that, uh, that weren't known, but it's it sort of Walter as impresario and salesman, in a sense.
0: Um, what's kind of interesting about both Schwitter's and Duchamp is that th- these were not artists of Hopp's generation. No.
1: Um,
0: these no. are artists that we typically associate with the early part of the yeah. of the twentieth century. Yeah. So how is it that Hopp's came to know Marcel Duchamp? I know you mentioned you alluded to the moment in the Arensbergs' right. house. Right. Well, he
1: so he he knew the work, I think, yes. through the through the Arensbergs, um, and he was just excited by it when he went to New York at some point. I. I assume with an introduction from the Aaronsburgs he he mm-hmm. looked him up, and I think Duchamp had had a girlfriend in Pasadena or something. He really liked yes. Pasadena.
0: Yeah, right. Um,
1: <laughs> so stayed
0: at that certain hotel. He, didn't yeah, you, the Green Hotel the green in Pasadena, Pasadena. Hotel, right. and so he
1: was excited actually to have a to have his major, <laughs> first major museum show in Pasadena, and um, I think they worked very well together.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, the, I've never to quote. I've never worked with a more agreeable or cooperative artist yeah. in my life. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> And, and Walter, you know, he, he was drawn to older mentors, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he was very drawn to Barnett Newman. Yes. Um, he didn't have a, a very fatherly, supportive figure in his own father, yes. and I think he, he felt that these were the, right. the people he saw as father figures. And he Ed and, and, and Jans as well.
0: He stepped in in ways as a kind of, I don't know, father figure, kind of an avuncular figure for artists that also kind of had this not a very strong parental presence in their own life. Right. Um, Robert Rauschenberg, Rauschenberg being yeah, one.
1: Whose, whose father made him sleep on the porch um, and, and whose work, Monogram, I don't know if you have that slide. I do. Yeah, so this, this work um, Walter discovered was a kind of tribute to the pet goat that Rauschenberg had had when he was 10, which one day his father had gone hunting and come home with nothing and so the father and his friend said well let's you know barbecue the goat so they ate his pet goat and, mm-hmm. and I think from then on Rauschenberg had a very hard time
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, liking his father mm-hmm. and so that was in a way in a way a tribute to that um, as was uh,
0: do I have as was yeah. this yeah.
1: one yeah with the white shoes I mean I, I think a lot of his work was about his difficulty with his father right and Walter You know, he didn't just love the art. He loved knowing what was behind it. And he did that particularly with Rauschenberg, where he basically walked through all of his works Mm -hmm. and um, discussed what was in them, Mm -hmm. you know, and and sort of figured out where they were coming from for him.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, What was striking to me about this, and I I don't know if this is true of Monogram as well, but moments when curators step in, or dealers step in uh, and they. Artists sort of leave things untitled and untidy in their mm-hmm. studios. Mm-hmm. And you kind of need these shapers. Yeah. Um, so, uh, not sure about Monogram, but at least for. For untitled man with white shoes, what's the story? Hops goes in to Rauschenberg's studio and says, he it's just so said
1: he was doing a huge show of Rauschenberg. He said, I 'I can't call everything untitled. untitled yeah. We have to go through yeah. this, and we have to give some titles.' Yeah. So some of them, uh, Rauschenberg insisted, were untitled, but others he and this he one was agreed. one of the ones yeah. that said, I can't I can't
0: title that one. <laughs> yeah. It's too personal yeah. to me.
1: Exactly.
0: Um, and it was something like the man who's the man in the white suit. It's exactly. the father that I never yeah, the, father the father I wished I had I wish had. I had. Yeah. 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 And I think that speaks tremendously to the amount of permission that was allowed between Walter and the artist that he represented, that there was like yeah. no barrier. They were yeah. kind of familial in a way.
1: One of my um, favorite lines, it's not, it's not from the book, though it's quoted in the book, was um, Calvin Trillin did a, I'm sorry, Calvin Tompkins did a profile of Walter in The New Yorker in 1991 or 92. And at some point he asked him, do you, consider yourself an artist or you know is what you do close enough and and he said well I I consider that I belong to a tradition that goes back tens of thousands of years um, to cave paintings you know people made cave paintings but at the same time they needed somebody there to mix the pigments and to hold the torch he -hmm. said I'm holding the torch and that's that's good enough for Mm me Um, so uh, there was just a sense that he was enabling art Mm -hmm. to happen Mm-hmm. And and that was, that was really the root of everything for him.
0: Um, and then he goes to Washington.
1: <laughs> he goes to Washington. Yeah. So he got fired from Pasadena. Um, and at the time, he, he he had about ten years where he would say he was fully addicted to speed, and he was he was working a night job in college. He was working on a psychiatric institute at night and. Um, running a gallery and going to Mm. college and and that Mm. habit just continued into Pasadena and um, at some point he he went to New York to pick up Joseph Cornell works and he was on his way back and he just sat down in the airport and hours passed and he he was hospitalized and um, and so the, the the head of the board of Pasadena asked for his resignation at that point, which, mm-hmm. you know, fair enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it may- maybe wasn't very nice to him, but uh, fair enough. And um, so at that point, he was, he was a little bit at a loose end. He didn't know what to do. And uh, Ed Jans, a collector who'd been very supportive of him and also kind of a father to him, said, well, I know this institute in Washington called the Institute for Policy Studies. Why don't you just go there for a year, be part of this think tank? Um, and so Walter did that and, um, and from there he got to know some people who were involved with the Washington Gallery of Modern Art mm-hmm. and he started curating mm-hmm. there and then he took over that and it, then he was hired at the Corcoran mm-hmm. and brought the WGMA into that. So it, it sort of, things always happened for mm-hmm. him eventually right. um, and in Washington I think he was particularly proud of the fact that at the Corcoran he set up these workshop, workshop programs. Mm-hmm and he was bringing in artists from all different uh, forms. He brought in architects, he brought in photographers, um, sculpture, he had, and he had these workshops for the public and, mm-hmm. that were run by and taught by artists. Mm-hmm. And that was probably what he was most proud of. It was mm-hmm. also very racially diverse, his, his yes. group of artists, which wasn't so common in D.C. at the time. Right. Um, and uh, so he became a sort of figure there. I mean, it's very funny to think of him at the Smithsonian Totally. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's sort of what I would get.
0: I mean, you think about, we just had, you know, the he, this conversation about his Los Angeles-ness and yeah. his Californian-ness yeah. and his kind of audacity and all of those things do not describe yeah. Washington, D.C., which is... Right kind of square and sort of federalized. Yes, but at the
1: same time these were, these were the 60s and 70s yeah. and he was, you know, he went with Ginsburg to levitate the Pentagon. And yeah, th- there's actually a really funny story about that because he goes on this you know, protest to the Pentagon and, and he said he was trying to figure out what his protest would be and he brought some cans of um, black spray paint and he was just going to, you know, paint it black and so on. And at some point the, the police come along and so Walter ducks into some bushes and hides there until they pass because he's got a board meeting yeah. <laughs> to go to at the Corcoran. Right. Right. So, and then he ducks off and jumps in a cab and goes to his board meeting. <laughs> I mean, that that was the, the contradiction that he was. Um,
0: um, I, I kind of like this idea of DC pairing with this a little bit in my mind because he, yeah. he quite interestingly gets Robert Rauschenberg involved with the, bis- the, American the bicentennial. The
1: bicentennial. So he pitched Rauschenberg as the bicentennial man for the Smithsonian, for the National Collection of Fine Arts. Because uh, how he got that through, I'm not really sure. But he said, <laughs> "Well, you know, he's he's from this tradition of Benjamin Franklin. He's fascinated by science. He's he's you know very into history," and um, got this huge Rauschenberg show put on at the NCFA uh, and got government bicentennial celebration money for yes. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And got Rauschenberg on the cover of Time.
0: I think the true genius Um, is figuring out where the pools of money are and tapping into those. Yeah. Uh, And so he gets this bicentennial money for for Rauschenberg, and he says, um, Rauschenberg is delighted to be on the cover of (laughs) of Time. (laughs) But wouldn't
1: you? I mean, look at that. Yeah. No, he looks. It was a pretty unusual cover for the Time.
0: That's right, and I I don't think many artists or living artists were ever on the cover of Time, and so this this. Meant a great deal. Um, this might be kind of a strange question, but this so this made a meant a great deal to Rauschenberger. What did what did public fame mean to Hops, if anything? What's your sense of that? For himself. For himself.
1: Not a whole lot. Not a lot. Not a whole lot. Um, he, he wanted to be free to do what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, and that gave him a certain notoriety. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't. It, it, it wasn't, you know, Robert Rauschenberg curated by Walter Hobbes. Right. His name wasn't on anything, um, yeah. and this is, you know, maybe partly why I have an affinity for him as an editor because, as an editor, mm-hmm. your name isn't on things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you put out, you put something out into the world. That's you curate, yeah. Yeah. and um, his mark was. If you ask the artists, his fingerprints were all over every show. I mean, he was, yeah. and, and really even technically figuring out whether something should go an inch higher or lower, mm. and wh- what, what the juxtaposition should be, what the positioning should be. Um, even down to like, figuring out how to paint a wall so that you wouldn't get a shadow from a molding. Mm. Mm. Um, quite concrete things, but, right. but those were his specialty. And, and the goal was to get eyes on the art right, and to make people see it.
0: Um. Here he is with uh, Dominique de Menil uh, in Houston. So this is, in a sense, a kind of culmination uh, yeah. for him. So yeah. he becomes the first managing, I'm sorry, what the first director. He was founding curator. Founding yeah. curator. Founding director. And founding curator. director in, uh, in, at the outstanding Menil yeah. collection in Houston. Yeah.
1: So he, he started working with Dominique in, uh, I think, 1980. Um, and he was working at Rice Museum which she had sponsored, but uh, she wanted to do a museum of her collection mm-hmm. and figure out what should go into it. And she just, she loved his approach. And mm-hmm. he was a little older at this point, so mm-hmm. he was a little more stable. Right,
0: right. <laughs> um, had been to DC, D- 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 which will, uh, you yeah. know, finishing school.
1: But So they had this fantastic relationship. You know, this old, older woman who who's, who had a very strong interest in religious art, tribal art, mm-hmm. um, antiquities you know there was, there's a great story in the book about trying to rescue a Byzantine fresco
0: yes um, from cyprus from Cyprus yes. with uh
1: Dominique, which involved guns pointed at his head and yes. various things and money smuggling and so on um, but I think you know she saw what he saw in art and mm. and they had this wonderful relationship. They would just sit at that table until you know late at night. Um, Talking about art and, and why it was important I, I love this photo because I was just in that house about uh, six weeks ago, and it's still there and it still looks mm. the same
0: wonderful um, he um, yeah th- this part of the of the book for me was very much in a kind of retrospective mood <laughs> uh, and how, I guess, you sort of alighted on this, but how had Hopps really changed by the point that, at which he reached the, the Menil? I mean, certain fundamental things were there, but yeah. he also seemed to be changed.
1: He changed. Um, he wasn't doing speed. Yeah. <laughs> that that was helpful. Right. Um, and uh, he was happily married to his third wife. He wasn't in a tumultuous relationship. But um, I think it was also just so many of the artists he championed Mm -hmm. were at the top of their game and accepted Mm -hmm. and being seen and and collected and so Mm -hmm. on so i think he could relax a little more Mm -hmm. you know he'd gone from this sort of huckster with the artenders in his Mm -hmm. jacket to to someone who was working in museums and Mm -hmm. in creating museums Mm -hmm. um so i think things definitely settled for him and also because dominique gave him carte blanche he didn't have to fight a system. He wasn't fighting the you know, gods of the Smithsonian. He didn't right. have the Haldeman across, across the way saying, take down this sculpture, mm-hmm. we don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. He just could sort of imagine things, mm-hmm. and, and um, that was probably an enormous sense of relief.
0: Right, and put yeah. together a collection which was <coughs> exactly what he wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah, which must have been just a tremendous
1: and helped design the museum itself joy. and That's the layout right. the layout of the museum, which yeah. is which is um, unusual. And also, I the one thing I saw when I was there was he. So the Menil collection is all one level, a very long, rectangular building with different galleries in it. Um, and he put together a scale model of the whole museum, with each room in it. And he he and uh, people working with him made sort of you know two-inch high or three-inch high mm-hmm. replicas of every work in the collection that are very accurate. And he could sit there with this model and move the art around mm-hmm. and hang it in miniature and see how things work together. And he had a little like periscope so he could put himself in the middle of a room
0: That's and
1: look around at the walls. And they still use it. They use it to curate there.
0: That's tremendous. That's so. great. Um, and then this is the, I guess the question that I would normally ask first but that I'm going to ask last which is that what brought you to Walter Hobbs
1: oh so well in the in the 90s he um, I was working at a, a literary and art quarterly called Grand Street in New York and um, he was the art editor mm-hmm. the person who owned it Gene Stein had known him for years um, and uh, so he w- I was mostly working on the literary side and he would with an assistant art editor select the art portfolios that would go in the magazine, mm-hmm. and um, usually we would want to have some kind of essay with these. But he didn't write, and he talked. Mm-hmm. If he, I mean, he wrote some things, but they sounded very stilted. But as a talker, he was incredible, and he would he could tell these stories mm-hmm. that you know people would want to. He, he would sit there he was a smoker. He would sit there with you know the cigarette and the ash would be getting longer mm-hmm. and longer and longer, <laughs> and you'd be. Like, um, And so we developed a system where he would talk on tape or be interviewed and I would take the tapes Mm. and use what he had said to put together a more written piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And at some point, it seemed, uh, you know, I didn't want his stories to die with him. Mm -hmm. He had so many stories. He had an amazing life. He had so many thoughts on art. So we just decided to, why not do the whole thing? Mm -hmm. Let's embark on this project. And... um, so, uh, and Ann Doran was involved. She was uh, at the time assistant art editor at Grand Street, and she'd known him for decades. And so she would go to Houston and interview him, and she was very good at prodding him in directions, mm-hmm. and keeping him focused, because um, he often uh, had digressions. Um, <laughs> and uh, she had, we had about a hundred hours of tape, and I had maybe edited the first. Put together a draft of the first Mm -hmm. 50 pages which was really just his childhood Um, and he died Mm -hmm. and that was in 2005 and um, so then i had to uh, think about what i could do and couldn't do and whether i could still make the book out of this and eventually came up with this so it's not i couldn't ever go back and ask him to fill in the fill in the holes Mm -hmm. or ask him his opinion but I, i had a pretty good idea of which artists he wanted to have in their own chapters what Kind of book it should be, um, which was not just straight autobiography, but as we called it, a life in art. It was about him and art. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hope he would be okay with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, this is Mm -hmm. this is uh, it's all these words came from him, just maybe not exactly in this order.
0: Mm -hmm. Um. (laughs) But I get the sense that that he was a great pleasure to listen to because there's a there's a pace in reading the book. Yeah, um, that I get very much a sense of his audible voice.
1: Yeah, that I mean that was, I'm glad you say that. That was very important to me. I listened to every tape. Mm-hmm. I didn't have them transcribed. I listened and sort of put things into sentences as I listened, right. um, just because I wanted to keep the tempo and the way that he spoke and not have it be, you know, someone's approximation mm-hmm. of that. So.
0: What is a dream colony?
1: Oh, so that comes from his time at the Institute of Policy Studies, which was run by this guy Marcus Raskin, who um, wrote a book which Walter helped him with called *Being and Doing*, and in it he sort of it, it's it's sociological analysis, and he talked about um, the different levels of society. So you know, you've got the plantation colony, which you know we're all down here working very hard. Um, and up there in the sky is the dream colony, and that's the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he always loved this idea that the artists were sort of floating around there in dreams, not very substantial, not maybe not doing the hard, <laughs> the heavy lifting down on the ground mm-hmm. with us, but he, he loved that sense of, of uh, artists sort of appearing in your dreams, which mm-hmm. they did to him. So mm-hmm. he, yeah. had a, he had a great story, um, I mean, sad story but actually about Ed Keenholtz, who, whom he was close to through his whole life. Um, and when Ed Keenholtz died, Walter had recently had a brain aneurysm rupture and was in the hospital and could not uh, leave and go to the funeral. And that night he, he had a dream where he sort of rose through the ceiling of the hospital, mm-hmm. flew up to Idaho.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: where. Uh, Keenholtz was buried in, <laughs> in his car, mm-hmm. sitting up in the driver's seat mm-hmm. of his car, and somehow went through the ground, sat down in that car, mm-hmm. and Keenholz took him for a ride. And, and at some point said, how about we fly up to Canada? And Walter said, I, I actually think I, I have to get back. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> um, and Keenholz was a little disgruntled, but they went back and he sort of flew back to his hospital in Houston, and and I think he always thought that you know if he'd said yes, he would have died that mm-hmm. night, and he would have gone with with Keenholtz, but artists for him were were his dream life.
0: So hmm. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you Thanks. Yeah.